Good morning, everyone. Thank you for joining our live broadcast for this morning. Well, let's pray first, and then, uh, Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Father, we ask that your Spirit would fall upon our service, upon the teaching, that your Spirit would really be our teacher, Lord, bringing forth these truths in the power of your Spirit for your glory and giving us grace, Lord, to apply into our lives whatever we can and uh, must apply, that we might be the people that you have called for this such a time as this. We just thank you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I just want to start off by saying that um, I'm very burdened for our nation. And it goes far beyond the... Uh, coronavirus lockdown we are currently living under. The more I read and watch the news, the more I feel our country is on the verge of something big. I mean, you can almost feel it, can't you? The sense that we as a people are on the verge of something that has the potential for changing our country, the country that we have known and loved our, our entire lives in a profound and possibly irreversible way. Because of this, I felt compelled to do a series which I've entitled, What's Next for America? Last week, we began this series with a message entitled, Looking Back to Move Forward. As I said last week, I personally don't think we can go forward as a nation until we first look back and remind ourselves of where we've been. In other words, what our heritage has of our nation has been. What our heritage as a nation has been. There's a lot of things about our heritage that we're not being told anymore today. For example, uh, you were probably never taught uh, when you were in school that out of the 55 founding fathers that gave us our Constitution, 52 of them were Christians, devout Christians, and active in their own Christian churches. In fact, 29 of them had been officially, formally trained for the ministry. Not every one of them was, of course, in, in active ministry, but they, 29 had actually been trained to be ministers, pastors. The fact that they were devout Christians, not deist folks, don't listen to people who say, well, they were deists, no. Uh, they were devout Christians. And the fact that they were devout Christians had a profound effect on the form of government they chose for our nation. And one of the main reasons why God is blessed it the way he has over the last 244 years. You know, our government is unique in the world. And people recognize this. For example, did you know that in the last 200 plus years, France has gone through seven complete changes in its form of government Italy is on its 48th, but America is still on its first. Now, this is so unique and amazing that a group of political science professors from the University of Houston set about to figure out just what was it that made our nation so, so unique and strong. So they set out to discover who or what influenced our founding fathers, what they believed uh, and who they quoted most from in their writings, all in an effort to understand what it was that made our form of government so unique and our country so special. It took them 10 years, okay? 10 years of digging through the quotes of the founding fathers, but in the end, 
after 10 years of research, they came to this conclusion. Of all the quotes by the Founding Fathers, 34% came directly out of the Bible verbatim. And another 60% were based on the scriptures. So 94% of everything our founding fathers said came right out of the Bible or was based on the Bible. Folks, the Bible was literally the foundation that our nation was built upon. Now, the devil realized this, and he knew that to bring down this nation, he would need to target the foundation upon which our nation was built. In other words, he would need to attack our Christian heritage, and, and including and especially the commandments and principles of God found in his word, which we, our founders, built this nation upon. That brings us this morning, uh, that brings us, I should say, to this morning's message, which I've entitled, If the Foundations Are Destroyed. Now, I've taken that title from Psalm 11, verse 3 which says in its entirety, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Of course, there are many other scriptures that go along with that idea. I'll read you two more. Proverbs 14, verse 34, which says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 17, which says, Do not be overly wicked nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? Now, folks, that doesn't just apply to individuals. It can also apply to nations. It can also apply to nations. In an article entitled, Is the Great American Dream Turning into a Nightmare? The author had this to say about where we are as a nation, this point of time. He said, and I quote, God has showered upon America over 200 years of blessing. As she acknowledged and obeyed her creator, God elevated her from infancy to a place of world leadership. He has allowed her to enjoy unprecedented wealth, freedom, and influence. America has led the world in medical and technological advancement. The nation has pioneered in space, pushed back the frontiers of science, and given its citizens the world's highest standard of living. With grateful and humble hearts, Americans once honored the God who granted her blessings and freedoms. But slowly, almost imperceptibly, she began to attribute her blessings not so much to God, but to man, forgetting to acknowledge the power that hath made and preserved us as a nation, as one of our founders said, her citizens began to congratulate themselves on their own achievements to celebrate man while relegating God to the back seat. The God of secular humanism began to infiltrate all of her institutions, wallowing in materialism, self-centeredness, and pride. Many Americans decided that they really didn't, didn't need God after all. Some began to tamper with God's absolute standards and to tolerate what they would never have allowed before in their own lives or in society around them. That which God says is never right could be sometimes right, depending on the situation. Courts that had once ruled against immorality began to grant freedom to every man to do that which was right in his own eyes, quoting from Judges 17, verse 6, and chapter 21, verse 5. 
The author goes on, lines of right and wrong blurred. In time, all sorts of ungodly behavior became acceptable, even admired. I'm thinking of the gay pride parades, of course, that uh, every city seems to uh, hold up and uh, all. Uh, Americans no longer were shocked. Eyes grew accustomed to the dark. Few citizens rose up in outrage. Then he makes this statement. He said, when God fades from a nation's conscience, one can justify almost anything. He goes on from there to, to uh, talk about how Americans have tried to camouflage what God calls sin with new terminology to soothe our conscience and to justify our actions. The author said, God said thou shalt not kill, but Americans gave murder a new name, a woman's right to choose and indifferently abort a million and a half babies a year, 60 million plus since Roe v. Wade. God calls it drunkenness. We call it alcoholism, a social disease. God calls it sodomy. We call it homosexuality, an alternate lifestyle. God calls it perversion. We call it pornography, adult entertainment. God calls it immorality. We call it the new morality. He then concludes by saying, America once legislated against those things that God said to be wrong, but gradually began to tolerate, then accept, then condone openly, and even promote that which was once unthinkable. unthinkable. The perversion and degradation that once made us blush are now flaunted before the eyes of a nation that was conceived in the fear of God. It has happened little by little right before our eyes, not because someone forced it on us, but seemingly because we did not care. We just didn't care. I think it's the old frog in the kettle scenario that we're living uh, out in our nation. You know, much of, the, what, much of our nation's decline can be traced back to two very important rulings by the Supreme Court. The first one came in 1962 when the court banned prayer in public schools, and then again in 1963 when the court banned any Bible reading or Bible study in public schools. You see, guys, up until that time, the Bible, uh, up until that time, Bible studies and school studies were always combined in the public schools. That's why there were so few Christian schools in our country uh, up until that point it was because the public schools in a sense were the christian schools to give you just one example from 1690 to 1900 all children entering entering public schools were taught the alphabet in how to read from something called the new england primer now i've got a reproduction in my office you can go online and order one a little book that taught them the alphabet and then how to read and different uh, things to, to, for them to learn. Uh, let me just give you an example of how the New England Primer, again, how all students entering into public schools were taught from 1690 to 1900. Here's how they were taught the alphabet from that Primer. A, a wise son makes his father glad, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. You realize they're taking scripture. All right, to reinforce the letters of the alphabet. B, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. C, 
Come unto Christ, all ye that heavy that uh, labor. Come unto Christ, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and He will give you rest. D. Do not the abominable thing which I hate, saith the Lord. And it goes on to teach the entire alphabet using Scripture. Guys, the same was true with our history books. They talked about our Christian heritage, our founding fathers' faith, and even gave the uh, students Bible study lessons. But around this time, 1962 to 1963, things began to dramatically change in America. It's right around the time, of course, that um, our Supreme Court removed the Bible and prayer from our public schools. Uh, things began to change dramatically around that time. The result was moral and social disintegration. Up until 1963, crime and other social problems remained relatively low. But then starting in 63, these problems began to rise dramatically. In fact, since 1963, America has become number one in the industrialized world in violent crimes, divorce, first in the Western world in teenage pregnancy, involuntary abortion, in illegal drug use, and in illiteracy. Starting in 1963, the divorce rate, single-parent families, unmarried couples living together all began to skyrocket. Birth rates for unwed teenage girls ages 15 to 19 were up 400%. For girls ages 10 to 14, up 550%. And of course, sexually transmitted diseases were up several hundred percent as well. Listen to this. See if it doesn't kind of blow your mind, okay? Top, the top seven school problems in the 1940s. The top seven school problems in the 1940s. Taking, excuse me, talking in class, chewing gum, making noise in class, running in the halls, cutting in line, dress code violations, littering on school property. The top seven school problems today Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, assault. Amazing. Amazing. Most of us remember the Columbine High School shooting in Littleton, in Littleton Colorado back on April 20th, 1999. The perpetrators were uh, senior students Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold who on that day, Hitler's birthday, which is why they chose that day, on that day they murdered 12 students and one teacher, which started a movement of modern-day mass shootings, most of them targeting school students. On Thursday, May 27, 1999, Daryl Scott, who was the father of Rachel Scott, one of the victims in, uh, of the uh, Columbine school shooting, was invited to address the uh, House Judiciary Committee subcommittee. The following uh, is a portion of that transcript. Let me just read to you just a portion of it. He said, I am here today to, de to declare that Columbine was not just a tragedy, it was a spiritual event that should be forcing us to look at where the real blame lies. Much of the blame lies here in this room. Much of the blame lies behind the pointing fingers of the accusers themselves. I wrote a poem just four nights ago that expresses 
my feelings best. This was written before I knew I would be speaking here today. It goes like this. Your laws ignore our deepest needs. Your words are empty air. You've stripped away our heritage. You've outlawed simple prayer. Now gunshots fill our classrooms and precious children die. You seek for answers everywhere and ask the question, why? You regulate restrictive laws through legislative creed, and yet you fail to understand that God is what we need. Mr. Scott went on. Spiritual influences were present within our educational system for most of our nation's history. Many of our major colleges began as theological seminaries. What has happened to us as a nation? We have refused to honor God, and in so doing, we open the doors to hatred and violence. He ended with this. The real villain lies within our own hearts. Political posturing and restrictive legislation are not the answers. We need a change of heart and, and a humble acknowledgement that this nation was founded on the principle of simple trust in God, end quote. Folks, let's take a minute, and, and I realize not all of you are as interested in American history as I am. So uh, when I tell you I cut out a lot of the quotes I could have brought, uh, just so you know, okay, just bear with me. It's important that we understand our heritage. Uh, I'm sure that most, if not all, of you were never taught uh, your heritage, your, the right heritage of our nation, all right, in school. It's been expunged by secularists and globalists who want to get you away from your heritage, who hate God, who want a secular society. I think it's important that we understand our true heritage. If we're going to go forward, we have to look back a little bit, right? So let's take a minute to look at what our founding fathers had to say about the foundation of our nation. Benjamin Rush, one of our founding fathers and signers of the Declaration of Independence, who, by the way, served under three presidents, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison, in an ed educational policy paper that he authored in 1791, Rush gave a dozen or so reasons why the Bible would never be taken out of school, out of schools in America. Primarily, he said, and I'm quoting him, if we ever took the Bible out of the classroom, there would be an explosion of crime. It could be that he had the words of Martin Luther in mind, who said 250 years earlier, I am much afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of the youth, end quote. Benjamin Rush went on to lament. In contemplating the political institutions of the United States, I lament that we waste so much time and money in punishing crimes, and we take so little pains to prevent them, end quote. And the context, of course, in which he was speaking was that, you know, the consequence of removing the uh, Bible from the public school uh, classroom, uh, you know, and, and how that if that was ever uh, done, of course, he never thought it would be, but he didn't realize how bad things would get. Um, but how that if the Bible was removed, if religious standards were removed from the classroom, there would be no restraint on misbehavior, uh, on evil, crime. 
Noah Webster, another one of our founding fathers, in a textbook he authored for students, uh, he identified the reason serious uh, social problems might befall America. He said, and I quote, All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible, end quote. That's one of our founding fathers, Noah Webster, okay? John Adams, our second president and signer of the Constitution and Bill of Rights, on October 11, 1798, said that there is no government in the world strong enough to force people to do something against their will. In other words, he's saying you just can't coerce people to be good moral against their will. He said, and I quote, We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other, end quote. Now, let me just stop and say this. When you read the founders, okay, and you hear them talk about religion or religions, you have to understand, we talked about this a little last week, okay? When they talk about religion, they are talking about Christianity. When they talk about religions, plural, they're talking about different denominations of the Christian faith. As I said last week, a lot of people read the Founding Fathers just from a superficial standpoint and hear them talk about freedom of religion. And in their minds, they jump to the assumption that what they're talking about is the freedom to have people from all over the known world come to America and bring their religion, be able to practice their religions openly. And that's what the Founders wanted. Now, I'm not saying the Founders would have ever wanted to prevent anyone to come to our country and practice their religion. I am just saying that the Founding Fathers, when they talk about freedom of religion, what they meant was the freedom for Christian denominations to come to this nation and all practice their form of Christianity without a state church, which we talked about last week, the thing that they had in England, okay? And that's what they were talking about. Understand that. When you hear them talking about religion, it's Christianity, not Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and so on, okay? Robert Winthrop, an early speaker of the House of Representatives, said, and I quote, Men, in a word, must necessarily be controlled either by a power within or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or by the bayonet, end quote. James Madison, the chief architect of the Constitution, said, and I quote, We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all of our political institutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, listen, according to the Ten Commandments of God, end quote. John Adams, in writing to Thomas Jefferson, had this to say, and I quote, Have you ever found in history one single example of a nation thoroughly corrupted that was afterwards restored to virtue. And without virtue, there can be no political liberty, end quote. Folks, I think we are fastly approaching that. Well, hopefully we're not, but, um, you know, 
as our nation is becoming more and more corrupt. And we have leaders that are celebrating the corruption, celebrating sins that God has forbidden. God said we're, we're immoral and unjust and so on. As our nation is full of leaders that seem to want to promote evil, we have become a nation that is calling evil good and good evil. That's something that uh, God said through the prophet Isaiah was uh, a nation would begin to say those things uh, on the verge of, of judgment. It would become so bad it would cause God to have to judge them if repentance didn't happen immediately, right? But um, if we more and more move away from the Bible and from virtue as God out, uh, outlays it in his word, uh, well, without virtue, there can be no political liberty. And look at now how we are being ruled by tyrants, tyrants. George Washington, in his farewell address, considered to be the greatest speech ever given by an American president, absent from our school history books for 40 years, because again, you have people that do not want you to honor your nation. They don't want you to have strong ties to your national identity. They want to divorce you from your national heritage, from your love of country, your flag, and so on, to get you to federate under a global government and so on. That's coming, folks. We know that the Antichrist is probably alive right now, and those things are getting ready to be uh, foisted upon the human race. But uh, George Washington, in his farewell address, he explained that there were only two foundations for political prosperity in America. Religion, and of course, again, he's talking about Christianity and morality. Christianity and morality, and of course, morality flows from Christian principle, from the Bible. He said in that address, and I'm quoting him, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, Christianity, religion is what he said, and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim to, to claim the tribute of patriotism who should labor to, to subvert these great pillars. Anybody who claims to be a patriot but works to undermine our Christian heritage and the morality that flows from it, they're not a patriot. They are subverting our country. They're bringing it down. He went on to encourage Americans to reject any tenet which asserted that one could be moral without religion, without Christianity. You see, guys, Washington knew that if Christianity was taken out of our nation, you would have no basis for morality. And without morality, there would be no respect for life or property. In other words, lawlessness would abound. Of course, it was only 10 years after God was taken out of the government, Bible and prayer out of schools, that Roe v. Wade was, uh, uh, was ruled upon and abortion became legal in this country. And, we've, and they have aborted over 60 million babies since then. If the blood of righteous Abel cried out to God from the ground, one man unjustly killed, what, what is the sound of 60 million children crying out to God uh, from the grave? What does that sound like in the ear of God, in the ears of God? And how could God um, look the other way? How could that not be something he would hold this nation accountable for unless... There was a dramatic and immediate change of heart. But he knew 
Washington knew. Without Christianity, you have no morality. Without morality, well, you have, uh, you, you've removed the very foundation upon which this country was built. There'd be no respect for life or property or anything else uh, if that were the case. In 1853, a group came and petitioned Congress saying, now here's what they, what they said, we want a separation of Christian principles from government. In other words, what they're saying is we want total separation of church and state. Now, we talked about this last week, so go back and listen to that message if you weren't uh, here among us, all right? Our founding fathers never wanted separation of church and state in the sense that government was allowed to mess with the church, but the church was to stay completely out of government. No, in fact, the opposite was true. They didn't want the government messing with the church, but they did want Christian influence always involved in the government because they had built our government on Christian principle on the Bible. But here's a group of secular people that came back in 1853 and said, look, we want a, a country completely divorced from um, Christian principles, the government from Christian principles. That petition was referred to the House and Senate Judiciary Committees, which investigated, listen, for a whole year to see if it were possible to separate Christian principles from our government. At the end of that year, they both came back with similar reports. I'll read you from the House version. It says, and I quote, The House Judiciary Committee, March 27, 1854. The, uh, this is what the House said. Had the people during the Revolution, Revolutionary War, had any suspicion of any attempt to war against Christianity, that revolution would have been strangled in its cradle. Now, here's what they're saying. If our founding fathers and the people that came over here to honor God and establish a Christian nation, if they had any idea that in establishing that Christian nation down the road, that very nation would turn its back on God and would try to separate itself from the very principles uh, that made the country great in the first place, God's word and so on, they would have strangled this infant country in its cradle. In other words, they would have never uh, have allowed it to continue. They were God-fearing men. They would never have wanted a secular nation. That's not why they came over here. They came over here to practice the Christian faith freely, away from the influence of the state church in England and so on. The king and so on. They went on to say, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and the amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one denomination. Now, folks, that's exactly what the First Amendment was intended to, to represent. We talked again about this last week. The First Amendment gave us freedom of religion, but not necessarily to practice, you know, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, as I said, uh, for different Christian denominations to practice their faith uh, without being persecuted. They didn't want a state church. They didn't want one church held up above the others, and they were special, and all the other churches couldn't practice their faith the way they, in their heart and conscience, chose to practice it. This is what the House is saying, all right? That at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and amendments, the universal sentiment was that Christianity should be encouraged, but not any one denomination. In this age, there can be no substitute for Christianity. That was the religion of the founders of the Republic, and they expected it to remain the religion of their descendants. The great, vital, and conservative element to our system, in other words, the thing that holds our society 
together is the belief of our people in the pure doctrines and divine truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ, end quote. Folks, can you imagine the House and or the Senate making statements like that today? And that was, yet that was only 166 years ago. Wow, have we moved away from God during that time. Folks, what they were saying is, there, there is no way we can separate Christianity from our government because our government is built on Christianity. Our nation, uh, they said a nation built on God and his word, end quote. That's what we are. There's no way we can separate Christianity from our government. Our government was built on Christianity, built on God's word, and so on. In 1811, after a ruling, the Supreme Court made this statement, and I'm quoting, Whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government, end quote. Now, that was a ruling that came out of a case back then where a man, listen, amazing, kind of, you know, just boggles the mind. That ruling came out of a case where a man back then had blasphemed the name of Jesus Christ. He was arrested and prosecuted. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court where they found him guilty and made that statement. Again, let me read it. Whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government. You start uh, striking against God. Again, Satan knows you want to destroy a nation that was built on God's word. Strike at the heritage. uh, Come against the, uh, the, the foundation, the word of God. But they're saying anyone who would blaspheme, blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ is blaspheming Christianity. And um, you know that, that would tend to, to uh, dissolve or, or to destroy the very foundation that holds this nation together. The court was essentially saying anybody who blasphemes Jesus Christ is attacking Christianity. Anyone who attacks Christianity is attacking the foundation upon which our country was built. And therefore they're trying to subvert our country. I just said it to you, all right? In 1892, the court made a ruling and then made this statement. Our laws and our institutions must must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization, our countries we're talking about, And our institutions are, listen, emphatically Christian. Again, that came from a Supreme Court ruling back in 1892. Look, as I bring this to a close, please listen to what I'm about to say, okay? Please listen to what I'm about to say. Our founding fathers believed that not only individuals answered to God, but nations also. On the floor of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, they explained the difference between individual accountability to God and national accountability to God. They said, and I'm quoting, an individual answers to God in the future, but not a nation. When a nation dies, it is forever forever dead. It will not be resurrected in the future to answer for what it has done, end quote. So that begs the question, Uh, Therefore, when does a nation answer to God? Well, 
George Mason, who was the father of the Bill of Rights, explained. He said, and I quote, as nations cannot be rewarded or punished in the next world, so they must be in this world, this life. By an inevitable chain of causes and effects, providence punishes national sins by national calamities, end quote. Did you hear that? You know, when people die, they're resurrected at one point to stand before God. And uh, if they're unbelievers, they will have to pay for their sins against God at that time, and they'll be cast into hell for eternity. It's not that way with nations. Nations are not resurrected in the life to come to stand before God. So God deals with nations in this life. And he does so if a nation is living in sin, he will punish them through, listen, national calamities. Now, you fill in the blank. You decide which calamities you have seen today or going back uh, years that you think was actually God punishing this nation for its immorality. Now, there are folks that don't believe that God ever punishes a nation. Um, they just don't believe it. But if you're a Bible-believing Christian, I don't know how you get around it. I, I don't know how you deny it. Because it's obvious God did this with Israel. God said it uh, that any nation, you know, righteousness exalts a nation, any nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. And God has said over and over in his word, he will punish those nations that have rebelled against him, that, will, that walk in immorality and compromise and sin and so on, that embrace and celebrate the things he has forbidden in his word. God will punish them. I mean, if God didn't spare Israel, his beloved nation, but judge them for their immorality, what makes America think we're exempt? Again, I quote uh, Billy Graham, who said, if God doesn't judge America, he owes an apology to Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, Thomas Jefferson said something I've never forgotten. He said, and I quote, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and his justice cannot sleep forever, end quote. In other words, what Jefferson is saying uh, was saying is that um, I, I know God's a righteous God, and I tremble for my country going forward. If this country should ever turn its back on God and begin to live against God's commandments, even though God is merciful and long-suffering and often gives that nation uh, will give that nation time to repent, at one point God's justice will not sleep forever. His judgment is going to fall. Folks, again, I said it last week, I'll say it again. We are living in a giant grace period. We should have been destroyed years ago, except for the fact that God was a, is a merciful and kind God, gracious, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But because God has delayed his judgment, there are those who think God doesn't care how we're living. Or maybe even that God approves. Because how could we be being blessed like we're being blessed if God doesn't is not approving of us as a nation? Now you better think again. You better think again. You know, the great 19th century state, statesman and politician, Daniel Webster, gave us a solemn warning when he said something, again, I have never forgotten something that is sounding more and more prophetic as, the, as time goes on. Let me read it to you. And please, don't miss this. He said, and I quote, 
if we and our posterity shall be true to the Christian religion, if we and they should live always in the fear of God and shall respect his commandments, we may have the highest hopes of the future fortunes of our country. But if we or our posterity neglect religious instruction and authority, violate the rules of eternal justice, trifle with the injunctions of morality, and recklessly destroy the political constitution which holds us together, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all our glory in profound obscurity, end quote. Wow, I still get shivers up my spine when I hear that quote. I've heard it for years and reread it from time to time. What Webster is saying is, if you think your nation is so strong and so prosperous that God in a moment's time can't destroy it and blot out the memory of that nation in profound obscurity, you're kidding yourself. Folks, eight weeks ago, we had the strongest economy in the world or that, and that the world had ever seen. Eight weeks ago, we had the strongest economy the world had ever seen. We were approaching 30,000 in the stock market. 30,000. And yet in a matter of weeks, God has brought it all down. What is he teaching us? What is he screaming to us? I think in his mercy and love, he's saying, you're putting your trust, your hope in your country and its prosperity, in your military power. Don't you know I raise you up from nothing and I can bring you down just as quickly? Don't you understand? You've turned your back on me and I will not tolerate a country that I have blessed, that is called on my name, that represents my name. I will not tolerate a country. I didn't Israel. I want America. I won't tolerate your nation. If it continues living in sin and rebellion, I don't care how strong you think you are or how prosperous you think you are. I can bring it all down in a moment's time and I will if you don't get your lives, your hearts right with me. I think this whole thing that we're going through, I think it's God's way of getting our attention. I really do. I think God is trying to tell us that worldly prosperity is very fleeting and in a moment's time can all be gone. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Those treasures will never be corrupted, will never be stolen. They'll be waiting for you when you get there which means you have to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. No man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us that shall bury all of our glory in profound obscurity. Wow. So let, let me ask you this, or maybe you're thinking this. Is there any hope for America? I mean, what if God has already... God has already pronounced judgment upon our nation. What then? Are we doomed? Is there no hope? Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. I don't want to leave you without hope. And, and while you're turning there, let's remember one thing. God sent Jonah to the capital of the Ninevites, Assyria, and told them that they had 40 days before God's judgment was going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Forty days, and they repented, and God spared them. I don't think we have 40 days left. I, I hope it's more than that. My point is that God is very merciful and gracious. 
And even if we're running out of time, I think we still have time. Listen, listen to what he said to the prophet Jeremiah. Now, the question is, uh, is there any hope for America? What if God has already pronounced judgment upon this nation? Are we doomed? Is there no hope? I want to leave you with some hope. Here's what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. I'm reading it to you out of the NLT second edition. Jeremiah 18, starting with verse 7. If I announce that a certain nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, but then that nation renounces its evil ways, I will not destroy it as I had planned. And if I announce that I will plant and build up a certain nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns to evil and refuses to obey me, I will not bless it as I said I would. Therefore, Jeremiah, go and warn all Judah and Jerusalem. Say to them, we can pencil in America, okay? Say to all America, this is what the Lord says. I am planning disaster for you instead of good. So turn, repent, turn from your evil ways, each of you, and do what is right. And in other words, what is godly, what I have commanded in my word. Again, our title, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? They can pray. They can pray. And I mean, folks, pray. Again, I draw your attention to 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven their prayers. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Can I have you please commit yourselves to praying for America? Yes. But especially for the uh, outreach to the heartland this summer. The one called 2020 Vision for the Heartland Outreach. It's being... Um, put together right now, and right now prayer teams are forming. Can I encourage you to pray individually, uh, pray as a family, pray uh, in Zoom meetings maybe together on different days of the week, praying for America, praying for revival, praying that God would fall on us with conviction, that we would be broken, repentant, and that we would seek Him with all our hearts, that He would not destroy this country, which we are deserving of his judgment, make no mistake about it, but we ask him for mercy instead of what we rightly deserve, which is ju judgment. What's next for America? That depends on which direction we as a nation choose to go. Next week, we'll conclude this series by talking about how we can do the very thing God said we must do if we're going to avert the judgment that is coming upon this nation, how we, how we can change course, change direction, and hopefully see our nation restored once again to blessing, to glory, as a nation under God, a people that love him, that keep his commandments, that cherish his word, a people of God that will bring glory to his name as a light to the entire world around us. May God give us grace to be that people again.
Otherwise, folks, there's no hope for America. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have raised this nation up from nothing, from infancy, and over the centuries have made it the greatest power in the history of the world with the most prosperity, the most freedoms. And we thank you for that, Lord. But obviously, you know better than we what has happened and how we have turned our back on you, how we are celebrating evil, how we think that we're great because we made it happen. Our military strength, our capitalistic system, that's what made us great. No, that is not what has made us great. And Lord, what do you have to do to cause us to realize that? How much do you have to take from us? How much does this country have to crumble before we get on our knees and acknowledge you and repent and plead for mercy? Father, give us grace to do that. Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful day.